This is Salmon Folk Radio. Welcome to episode five, and one of the things I want to point out about this podcast is this is the world's first podcast dedicated to getting salmon farms out of the world's oceans. And pretty much every person that I get to interview for this project is dealing with getting fish farms out of the waters because it's already in the water. This interview is different. This is the first time that I have been able to talk to someone or even heard of anyone who is saying, we're fighting the fish farms before they are even put into the water. And so we come upon the story of two super remarkable women from Argentina. And I don't want to give too much away. Just stick around, listen, learn a lot. And for reference, this interview took place on July 13th, 2021. And if you are a fish farm fighter, Somewhere on the globe, this one's dedicated to you. Let's go straight to the interview. I am Martina Sasso. I'm the director of the marine program No Blue, No Green from the NGO Rewilding Argentina. And I have been working for almost five years in this project with a really high-talented team. I am Maya Gutierrez. I am head of communications for the marine program No Blue, No Green for Rewilding Argentina. And I'm lucky to work with Martu. I've been working with Martu for the last five years. And that's what Martu was saying with an incredible team of of people that, that work with us that made this possible. Martina, start the audience back at the beginning of your journey. When did all this start? I... I used to be working for the worst companies in the world, like Coca-Cola, like Facebook, (laughs) like Google, like (laughs) you name it. I was a creative in an agency, a really well-known agency in Argentina. And I was thinking ideas for them to sell millions and millions of of Pepsis and 7-Up. And I I grew up with Maya. We went to the same school. Then we didn't, we, we split from schools when we were really young and we went to different universities. Um, she studied graphic design. I studied advertising. We started talking while working. She was also working for other brands. She had her own studio. And uh, we would gather after working time and think how we could think ideas to save the planet and have a better world. Huh. That is so cool. And this was like maybe 12 years ago already. It was a lot of time ago. Um, and we would sit and think and say, one day we're going to work together and we're going to do things that can change and help nature and everything <laughs> we loved. And um, that is how, um, after several years of working at that agency, um, we were having a really international uh, recognition. I was in a very good moment at my job, at what I was doing. And I resigned. And 
started working um, for the government, for the Argentinian government. They were shutting down the zoo and uh, we were taking away all the animals to different sanctuaries. And that was the best job I could ever have. So I went for it. I got it. <laughs> we started studying conservation with Maya. We went to a school here in Argentina uh, and started reading about and, and studying. And um, while I was working in the zoo with Maya, we met the president of Rewilding Argentina. And she said, come and work with us. So I resigned to the zoo and uh, they let me gather my own team. And uh, as soon as I, I had the possibility, I told Maya to jump in. And we started thinking together the marine program that now has almost five years. What you guys are doing is so exciting. And that, that backstory between you and Maya just makes it even more sort of magical. Maya, how have the last two weeks been? And what have you all been celebrating? Last two weeks have been a roller coaster. We've been working really hard on the clock. Uh, I don't know how to explain how these two weeks were because it, they were really emotional for us. I would say that these two weeks were really, really historic for us. For people who have no idea what's going on in Argentina, and they're just now starting listening to this episode of the podcast, what is it that we're talking about? Argentina has banned salmon farming, open net salmon farming from its waters two weeks ago on the first days of July. And um, this had huge implications in our country because the only place where salmon farming, open net salmon farming could occur is in Tierra del Fuego province. That is the last province, the southernmost province we have here in Argentina. And by saying, by, by that province banning salmon farming, they are banning in a way open net salmon farming in Argentina. So it was historical. It was a unanimous decision made by the 15 legislators uh, in Tierra del Fuego and um, had the company of the whole Argentinian society. Uh, we thought uh, it wasn't going to have this amount of repercussion, but here in Argentina, everybody was talking about it in a good way or in a bad way, because these things happen when, when things change. So after these two weeks, of seeing the repercussion it had worldwide and how other countries are now looking at Argentina and how Argentina had declared itself in front of the UN after this happened, I can say we are changing a little bit the status quo and um, that is shifting the way people think all over the world, not over in Argentina. So what we thought was just a small battle here in Argentinian territory actually turned out to be a great flag to be raised by everybody around the world. And um, we have been actually cheering and also working as, as fast as ever because lobby industry never ends. And um, there are some obscure powers and other industries that think that this established a precedent on the industry by banning an industry. So the mining industry, also the oiling companies, everybody's frightened because if Argentina had the courage to ban open net salmon farming, that is the second biggest economy in Chile, that is our neighbor, what is going to be next? So the work continues. It doesn't end on, on banning salmon farming. Now we need 
to keep strong and, and, and letting everybody in their countries around the world to join this global movement and start working for this to happen elsewhere. <laughs> wow. Okay. Wow. That's just, I'm just sitting here smiling ear to ear, listening to everything you're saying because it's, it is, it's, it's actually listening to you all talk is much bigger than even I realized. I mean, that is just incredible. I didn't think that it would have the ramifications that you're talking about in terms of putting other industries on notice and putting Argentina at the forefront. So wh when did all this need for a ban start? This started in 2017 when the government of Argentina, the government of the province of Tierra del Fuego and the Norwegian uh, crown, they signed an agreement to make what they called technological transfer. That was the name of the project where Norway will export, so Argentina will import their old technology for breeding salmon. This means open net salmon farming and start farming salmon on the pristine waters of Tierra del Fuego. So it's interesting. I was expecting you to say the name of a big Norwegian company like, like Cermak or uh, Maui, but you're saying the Norwegian government was the one that was starting this process with Argentina? Exactly. And um, the Norwegian government will be the one who would lead us to marine harvest, actually called as Maui. That would wow. be the one that will be helping us to do the technological uh, transfer to Argentina. So people know, where, to, to, to get a, a sense of where we are, Argentina is on the southern corn, is on the door, Tierra del Fuego is on the door of the Antarctica. These are one of the most pristine waters on Earth. Um, as you know, several uh, researchers say that only 2% of the ocean is not impacted by human doings. And this part of the ocean where the Atlantic Southern Ocean meets the Pacific Ocean, that is where Tierra del Fuego is, as in the Gulf of the Antarctica, is one of the most pristine places where there's almost none of human impact. The fishing industry is very small, the community is small, and um, in, in a study we have done in uh, January of this year, we repeated the same underwater study that some American scientists have done in the late 1974. And um, almost 40 years later, we got the same results of this marine ecosystem being unalterated. So this was even the, the, the salmon farming industries would define this place of the planet as one of the last uh, cold waters with a healthy environment to breed salmon. This wow. and the Malvinas Island that people may know them as Falkland Islands. So this is how this started. Argentina has this incredible marine space that needs to be preserved where 50% of our kelp forest thrives. Kelp forest has been diminishing all around the world. There's a big, big trouble there up front in California with the kelp forest vanishing because of the ocean conditions. And here we have one of the last places where everything is unaltered. It's, it's, it's healthy and without human impact. So that is how everything started. There was the starting point. And the, the Norwegian um, Crown gave our government some money 
in uh, and our government put the other amounts this there's a name for this type of operations and they did this feasibility study where they would see where it was possible to install these big big cages in the water and they detected only seven points and this is important because when we compare the possibility of development of this industry in Argentina, we're talking about seven concessions. And when we're looking at Chile, we are talking about more than 1,500 concessions. So we would never be able to generate the same business model of Chile because we only have seven spots called by our government sacrifice spots where we could put the sound cages. They actually referred to them as sacrifice spots? That's, that's actual language they used? That was the actual language they used. So they didn't even use marketing for that. But why is that? It's because Argentina, Argentinians were unaware of this industry. There's nobody farming salmon in Argentina. And the only thing that we hear is what's going on in Chile. And it's always environmental disasters. That's the way they hit the headlines. Mm. So... We have no idea. Most Argentinians don't know from the, from where comes the, the salmon that they're consuming. We did a lot of um, service to people to understand what they thought about salmon because before we started working, we needed to understand how people felt about this. And when we talked about salmon, everybody would go with a smile on the face and say sushi. Like they didn't care if they couldn't pay for it, but they knew it was something that was tasty and that only rich people could have. So that's the way people thought about salmon here in Argentina. Some people thought it was fish on our ocean, in, in our maritime space. So they didn't know this was an exotic species and not just mm. any exotic species. It's a top predator exotic species. But that was a starting point, you know, the government planning this, yeah. Norwegian, uh, Norway giving us budgets to develop this feasibility study. The feasibility study was done and it was maintained and covered by the government. And neither the government of, of Tierra del Fuego nor the government, the national government will, would give us the information, even though that we have laws that permit citizens to access to public information. So after some a small legal battle uh, with our teams of lawyers, we um, accomplished to get this uh, study and the whole project, you know, the, the plans of the, of the governments. And that is when we started to think on a strategy on how we could turn this tide against this horrible industry that was going to put in jeopardy the, one of the pristine places remaining in Argentina and for the human world, right? For, for everybody. Excellent. Excellent explanation. So Maya, when, when, what's your first memory of how you got involved with this? Okay. So part of the stories that we are also working to protect are really uh, important area in Tierra del Fuego province. So while working there, we got this news about um, the Norwegian government and the Argentinian government and the provincial government agreement. And as Martu was saying, we started uh, gathering information, getting to, to meet people and to understand what they were thinking with the local fishermen, because we knew they were going to be impacted by the industry. 
um, started to get in touch with a lot of people there in Tierra del Fuego, not only in Tierra del Fuego, but also in the, in the Chilean part of Tierra del Fuego. And while talking with people, we got a call from Diana Mendez. Uh, she's a, a, a fisherwoman from Almanza, a really remote, I wouldn't say town, because I think 40 people live there only, um, in Tierra del Fuego. Wow, that that is a small town, yes. A really small town. They are all fishermen. As Martina was saying, they fish um, they, they fish spider crab. So we got a call from her. She invited us to her home. She opened us the doors of her house. We met her family. We went fishing. And she started to tell us about how they have been trying to put, to get the industry into the bigger channel before this big agreement. And they already knew that this was going to happen and what it meant for them and their whole economy because they are local fishermen. They provide uh, to local restaurants with, uh, with fish and spider crab and they work with nature tourism too. So, uh, and she is uh, like a really powerful leader there in the community. She was uh, a part of the, uh, of the fight. She really helped us with the fight and getting other people on board. Apart from this, um, something I think it's really important, Martu, I don't know, but I always remember this, is that before we did anything, once we had the information, we decided to make a really big meeting with scientists, other NGOs, people, uh, local fishermen, people from Chile. We invited a lot of people to Tierra del Fuego to see how we could stop the industry. And that was the starting point. And from then onwards, um, as Martina was saying, we, we started working on different strategies and we knew we had to ban the industry. We knew that we had to ban the industry because we know any, every time a government some, says something, whatever they write, they can erase it with their elbow. I don't know how to explain it. That is a fantastic way to explain it. <laughs> Can you describe a little bit briefly about the container within which you all work? Like what, what group you're associated with and how people even knew to contact you? We are part of Rewilding Argentina. This is an NGO funded by um, Douglas and Chris Tompkins in the late 90s. Um, these two philanthropists decided to start their conservation on the Southern Cone. And since then, their mission has been to revert the extinction crisis by creating marine and, and terrestrial protected areas and a local economy around them that is called nature tourism. And um, we also work really hard on rewilding. That is our main uh, tool for work. That it means actively restoring the ecosystem, top predators and, and all that goes with it. So that is a brief summary of Rewilding Argentina. We are No Blue, No Green. That is the marine program within this NGO um, that uh, I myself funded uh, with Maya and uh, Luli Macera, that now she's in the fundraising team. We funded the marine program called No Blue, No Green to start to tackle marine conservation in Argentina. Um, almost 40% of our territory is, um, is, is sea, is ocean. And less than 1% was protected by then, four years ago. So that's how um, we started uh, working. I, I lead this whole team of experts 
um, to, to, to create the changes we need to have a, a healthy ocean. We have created the two first marine protected areas in Argentina with 80% territory no take. That means no fishing allowed. Mm. And uh, as Maya was saying, we have been working on the, in the past uh, three years on Peninsula Mitre. That is, uh, we want to create a coastal marine protected area on one of the most pristine places on Earth. Where, where a lot of species, more than 36% of marine species migrate through that place called the Bigger Channel and the uh, Estrecho Lemer. Wow, that's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot. And it's also a feeding ground and reproduction ground for a lot, a lot of birds. Also with the little islands we have over there, like Staten Islands and stuff. We have been working to create that protected area. And in that way, we have bumped in with the salmon farming industry <laughs> part of this sacrifice points uh we're gonna be inside the, mar the coastal marine protected area we're trying to protect in peninsula mitre and to let everybody know uh, i i used to eat salmon i myself i'm a, cons a conservationist and an activist and i myself didn't know what i was eating now when you say you used to eat salmon just to differentiate it you mean you would you were eating open net farmed salmon? Yes, and that was coming from Chile. Five years ago, I was consuming that whenever I could. No, because it was here in Argentina. It's really really expensive. Just a few few little part of the population can consume it. And I remember didn't knowing that. And if I was a person that I was involved with environmental causes, and I was working for so long to change things how they are, and deforestation, everything that goes on. And suddenly everything is related. You know, mm. most of the deforestation that is going today on in Chaco, that is a province up north in Argentina, is to plant soy for, farm for salmon farmers in Australia, in Tasmania. Whoa. So I, I was actually um, fomenting this huge chain, not only destroying the ecosystem in Chile, but also destroying my own ecosystem in my own country. Um, so that's how we got involved. And uh, we got to eat with Diana Mendes. As Maya was saying, she's this local fisherwoman. Um, she's so we are so proud of, of how she deals with the community. Um, she lives in Almanza. It's a small, small town. Oh, it's on the coast of the bigger channel. Their houses, they're, they're, they look to the... Every morning you wake up and you will see the, the bigger channel and, and you could see Chile on the other side and they would go fishing for their th this type of crab that uh, we consume it a lot in Argentina and is actually exported. Uh, we get a lot of money doing the, the exporting that type of product. And, um, and that's wh where we got a sense of how these people have been living for so long. And wow. that was going to change. So she really changed a lot of how you looked at the entire problem. Totally. This was affecting our whole country and it would, it would kill a community. So the first thing we did was let's take a look what is going on elsewhere. And we just had to take a look through the window and look at Chile. Um, Chile is right next door to Argentina. You could see the Andean, La Cordillera de los Andes, that divides Chile country from Argentina. And up to uh, even the island of Tierra del Fuego, that is the last province of Argentina, is divided in half. And half is from the Chilean country and the other half is from Argentina. Ah, and that's where they wanted to put the farms. 
Exactly, in our side, right? In our, in our right. side of the island, where the bigger challenge is. So when we started working, we understood that it was huge. We saw, we understood that it was the second economy in Chile. So you share a border with this country, uh, just on the other side, to the west of you is Chile. And you're saying, you said that on their coastline, they have over 1,500 farm lease sites? Yes, exactly. From region wow. I-10, that is at the, like, in the half of the country, down, 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 up to Magallanes. When we started studying this whole project, we discovered that Chile would name this uh, this development development in Argentina as the Chilean expansion of the salmon farming. Oh, no. Yes, so what is going on? As the salmon farming advances... It kills the marine ecosystem around it. So between two years that that salmon pen is put in the ocean and 10 years from there, so in the, in the time frame of eight years, that marine ecosystem dies and you have to move the open pen to another place. Right. So they have been doing this for a lot of years, from 1960 onwards. So the last place that remains where they can occupy is the Argentinian side. So that is the way we went, like, putting all together the story to find out that it was huge. Did you all feel, once you saw the scope of this, did you all feel like this was a fight you could win? No. That's, that's the thing. I think um, when we saw the, the, the scope of this, we said, we need this to be international, national, and provincial. We need to strategically involve different sectors in all levels. Because this is not a battle we're going to win in an isolated province at the end of the world if we want to work it locally between commas, right? Hmm. So that's when, when we define the strategy. And then we also define the messengers. We knew that it is actually really logical that every time you want to um, take down a tree, there would be this NGO that would stand for it. Or when you want to do mining, there's an NGO or what, there's, people is expecting that people from the NGO side will be on the front lines of this. But we wanted to turn the wheel around it. We said, we're going to be there anyways. We need other people to be standing ahead. So we chose our messengers. And that was the big hit of our strategy. On one hand, we Argentinians won't teach Argentinians what the salmon farming is. Because we won't believe <laughs> talking between each other we would bring Chileans to our country and tell them oh. to speak for themselves what was going on. So I remember we invested a lot of money of our budget in bringing people to our country. Just bringing. We won't speak. We will generate the space. And this fisherman would tell its story. I remember people would, would even cry after hearing what he had said, that his whole life he has been fishing. He had a culture of locally fishing the waters for local products and selling to local restaurants. And when the salmon farming came, the industry came, they were all opposed, but they weren't heard. And the salmon industry settled there and they've been opposing for almost 15 years until the marine ecosystem died. And moreover, keep on working with the local products. And they ended up working for the salmon industry. Oh my gosh. And actually... His kid is called Ramon Navarro, that is a famous, famous surf rider. And he's the son of this guy who told this story. 
And uh, it was actually, you know, the space would be like in silence and everybody was looking at them. And we would invite everybody. We wouldn't call this like, a, you know, like an environmental, uh, I don't know, maybe uh, where speakers were gathered and only people from the environmental world would be invited. It was open. It's, hey, come and listen to these stories. Wow. Everybody would come and listen to what these people had to do. And then we made more strategic meetings, like Maya was telling when we made this meeting also in Tierra del Fuego with all the NGOs and um, people that represented small communities or original communities like the Chaganes or Cahuescar that are tribes that live here in Argentina, the descendants of those tribes. And we all got together and say, hey, how do we want to face this? So we understood how the, the NGO world wanted to face this. We wanted to go in battle within the environmental arguments, right? About all the disasters, all the impacts. So we, de we decided to make another strategy that would be the health strategy. So everybody was eating something. Nobody knew what they were eating and where it came from. And if we, the environmentalists, would say, hey, what you're eating is wrong, they wouldn't listen to us. So again, we chose our messengers and we thought that the chefs, the cookers would be the main speakers for this. So we strategically gathered with the most famous uh, chefs in Argentina, Francis Malman, <laughs> Narda Lepes, Christophe Martitegui, a lot of chefs that were putting to the in the mouth of the Argentinians the salmon and we showed them what they were doing. And I remember it was a small table, Maya was with me and some of the team their, their their jaw fell open. They couldn't believe where the salmon came, what it did, and actually the health reports on, on this farm salmon. So for people listening, if they're sitting at home like I am right now listening to you all, one of the things I've wondered is, what is my best strategy to approach a local chef in local restaurants where I live? Because I live in a pretty smallish town, but still, every restaurant that has any plate worth over 15 bucks, you know, so anything above a fast food chain serves a salmon dish. It's pretty much just accepted now that any half-decent restaurant you go into, the chef feels like they have to have salmon on the menu. And a lot of it is Chilean salmon. And so how would you suggest to people if they wanted to also approach chefs in their region to inform them and educate them What's the best takeaway that you all learned about how to do that? How do you approach a chef? I, I, I'm guessing this is a tricky question because it depends on every community. Um, what happened in Tierra del Fuego is that chefs depend a lot on local products and they already knew that having salmon farming was going to kill the local products like king crab, etc. And this is about the community in Tierra del Fuego. Chefs in the community of Tierra del Fuego were all on board saying no to salmon farming. Most, mostly all of the chefs, because as you were saying, fast food and not so personal cooking, I would say, or where you don't have a chef that is cooking, but it's just food. I'm guessing approaching them is a little bit more difficult. I'm, I'm, it's not impossible. But on the other hand, as Martina was saying, it's important to choose the messenger. We talked to Narda Lepes, to Francis Malman. These are names that here in Argentina, everybody knows them. Everybody hmm. knows them. As well as Mauro Colareco, which had won like his fifth Michelin star in, because of his restaurant in France. So when they started talking about it, 
another chefs and other uh, uh, restaurants started to listen and decided to take their salmon from their menu, as well as sushi um, restaurants. But how would you approach a chef in your local community? I'm guessing is first with information and second is trying to give an, an alternative, you know, like if you have local products and you can serve food that is from uh, that season and you can serve healthy food and show them that it is not more expensive than buying salmon in Chile or understanding what it means to buy salmon in Chile, how you're killing fish stocks in the ocean, fish that you also need to feed people. Um, I think that information is the key. And on the other hand, is choosing your champion. Mm, that's what I'm really getting is choosing the messengers was the biggest key for you all. Not everybody's a champion, you know? Yeah. It is not a criticism, but sometimes you need to choose your champion wisely. Within communities, people that have a strong voice and that have a personality and that you know that they are different. And when somebody is different, usually people like to take a look at people that they are different, you know? Mm -hmm. So maybe it's choosing, like, we have Lino Adillon in Tierra del Fuego. He's our champion there. He's a chef. He, know, he, he knows all the chefs in Buenos Aires City and in other provinces. And he started his own fight against salmon farming. And he was actually one of the first to put a, um, the voice about salmon farming. So maybe it's, it's about that, choosing wisely who you want to, hmm. who you feel can communicate your community better. So when you all would go to these chefs, was it mostly like a sit-down meeting or were you phone calling them or what was the context in which you would start to meet with these these messengers? Sit-down meetings. Yes, face-to-face -face meetings. Like, And that is also another, I think, another good learning from this whole three-year process was people get convinced when they see your face and see that you're worried and see that this is a big issue. This is not a phone call conversation. People have to empathize because on the first meeting we went uh, to talk with the chefs, we went with all the environmental impacts because we as environmentalists were actually shaked by what this could, could develop then, like all the diseases, everything. We were actually like, whoa, it's killing whales. Whoa, it's killing fisheries. Oh, And suddenly we understood when talking to them, like they were worried about the health issue. Like, hey, if wow. this is so badly for the ecosystem, what is doing to ourselves? And when we got and did some research about it and we find out about the antibiotics and everything that goes on on breeding these type of fishes on close containments, then we understood it wasn't healthy. And then we did some backup with science and got the papers that said that This wasn't good as it was said it was good. So when you empathize with people, when you get to talk to them and look at them, you understand that everybody's concerned about the issue in a different way. As I am concerned for the health of the ocean, somebody may be concerned for the health of their children. And other people up north may be concerned about the health of their forest. So everybody's concerned on different points of view and we need to attend those points of view. And this, you generate it by emphasizing, by, by sitting down with people and talking like human beings. So you all started in 2017. And at what point then would you say that you started to feel like, 
oh my gosh, I think we might have a chance at banning this? It's a difficult question because <laughs> you never win the, the, I don't know how to say partido. Uh, you don't win the match, the match. Uh, without winning the match. So we always were in a position, in a mental position, that we needed to give a big fight and um, never thought about winning this, just giving the best and the, the strongest fight we could ever give. That's an interesting perspective. So you didn't, you didn't have the perspective that, okay, we're definitely going to beat this. It was more just like, we've got to fight it with everything we have and just keep going forward. Yes, and have, we, we did have an end objective. We knew that for this to end, we needed to have a bill that would ban open net salmon farming from Argentina and promote to have it on land, if you want, but to ban okay. it from the marine ecosystem. So we had our, our happy ending, and that was it. We were going for it. But the decision to approve or not approve the bill, it's out of our hands in a way. I'm not a legislator. None of my team is. We can do everything we can, but the final decision is of these 15 guys. So with that in mind, uh, we started working and generating these different strategies with Chile, with the chefs, with local communities. We did a lot of the typical things everybody does, like speaking up in certain uh, events or environmental events in Tierra del Fuego, standing up with signs. We did everything, giving talks in school, in primary school, in secondary, in the university. But one of the strongest strategy that we did was that we understood that to gain this battle, we needed to talk in economic terms. Like every people from the government and these people that are listening to this might find, might find something uh, similar with the situation in their own countries is that politicians don't analyze things because of their environmental impact. They would care less if this brings money in the type of, of countries like ours, like Argentinians, for example, it, they wouldn't care about environmental impact. So we knew we had to give this battle in a different stage, and that would be the economic stage. So we started to understand that salmon farming, um, the way this industry behaves, cannot live with the tourist industry. The tourism industry would, would use the same channel, the same bigger channel to thrive that the salmon farming industry would need. And both industries cannot overlap because nobody's going to pay the most expensive uh, airline ticket and trip through the bigger channel to be sailing through bags and smell and cages where you need to be shooting the seals to get them off of the salmon cages or killing the penguins. So there's where, where we saw that this was the way to another battle to give. So we hired this really well-known economic professor of the University of Tierra del Fuego. And we did a six-month study where we would study the, the whole Argentinian and Norwegian project of salmon farming in Argentina. How many jobs will it give? How many money will be left in the country? Everything, everything associated with that industry. And we would analyze the current tourism industry on the bigger channel. And Tierra del Fuego is the second province in Argentina with most uh, tourists, international tourists. Almost 500,000 people come every year to this natural landscape to go to Antarctica or, or to be in one of the most pristine places on earth or to just to ski. So 
We knew that almost 50% of the families of Ushuaia, that is one of the biggest cities, Tierra del Fuego has only three cities, and Ushuaia is the biggest. 50% of the population, this means 17,200 jobs were given by the tourist industry. And the salmon farming industry would only provide 162 jobs. Whoa, wow. We were talking of having 162 jobs and leaving 17,200 people on the street because they wouldn't be able to do tourism over, or, uh, anymore. Wow. So that was a hot spot. So when we did the study and uh, we, st we started doing this media coverage around it and it was so good and so well established that it was published in a really well-known economic magazine in Argentina. Um, and then worldwide, it was also published. And this gave the arguments to the politicians that maybe this was not such a good idea. And that is when everything started shifting, no? Just environmental impacts, economical impacts, social impacts, and everything went adding up, adding up, adding up, until it was the perfect moment to have a bill that would ban salmon farming. And how do you bring a bill? How did that get introduced? So um, we started talking to the legislators and trying to find out who was interested in, who, who really understood about the economic impacts, the environmental impacts. And it was astonishing because most of these legislators say, hey, you're right, this shouldn't be going on here. But it was one legislator called Monica Urquiza who said, I'm going to present a bill. We need to wow. ban this. Because as Maya was saying at the beginning of all this, um, at that time when all this bursted up, the same government that was promoting salmon farming in Tierra del Fuego went out onto the press and to the media and said, hey, this is out of our agenda. And when we were talking to legislators, we were saying, yes, this governor may say it's out of agenda, but the next or the next, how can we assure that this will not happen in our province? So this brave legislator called Monica Orquiza said, I'm going to present a bill that bans salmon farming. And we started supporting that, that decision and that bill. And we started also um, working with other NGOs in Argentina and, and promoting this brave decision. And so at that point, we were also filming a documentary called Against the Current because we thought people should know about this. And what was the best way for people that maybe were not interested on, on the health and on what the chefs were saying we were going to ask the people if they were willing to lose these sacrifice points. So the documentary was made and was called Against the Current, where we scuba dive on every sacrifice point. <laughs> That's fantastic. And after scuba diving, we would ask the people, are you willing to lose this? After you have seen it, after you know what you have over there, are you willing to lose it? And Martina, when did this documentary come out? What time frame are we talking? And was it before or after Monica said she would introduce a bill? Monica said she would introduce the bill. And we detected that she needed social support. And what was going on is that people, a lot of people didn't know yet about this. So we decided to gain the social support by letting people know what this was going on and actually signing a letter that that now I was going to tell the story that every view of the documentary 
was a letter that was signed and sent to the government, to the legislature, saying <laughs> we wanted to ban salmon farming. I, I remember we did this so fast because we laugh at each other in, in the group we have because we are not media producers, you know, we are not Netflix. We needed to do it fast, quick. It should be it needed to be good and needed to engage people. So we did this in three months. It was pandemic year 2020, January. By March, April, we had the documentary finished. And we had also a lot of luck because we had interviewed the university professor that had made the economic study. And we have interviewed also the legislator, Monica Urquiza, in the documentary, talking about this bill. And by when the, the documentary was finished, the new government was chosen. And this legislator became vice governor. She's the actual vice governor of the province. And this university professor is the actual secretary minister of economy of the province. Whoa. Oh, my gosh. Wow. That is another learning of this whole story. When you in, uh, uh, involve a lot of people from different sectors, university, uh, decision makers, people from Chile, some fishermen, from, you can have this type of delights, right? It was, it was like a double hit because... We had the documentary telling everybody if we were asking people if we were willing to lose this to the salmon farming for the benefit of a few. And we have also um, now the vice governor involved and the minister of economy involved saying that this was not good. So they couldn't back up. They couldn't go backwards. Right. They were on this movie that. Um, we were uh, screening everywhere in the whole country and even in other countries, we were making them famous for it. So that was a strategy to assure that they wouldn't step backward. And um, we told people that if they looked at the documentary, a letter would be signed in support of this bill. So we gathered a lot, a lot of signatures, thousands and thousands. It was amazing. And people really engaged. And um, we even got a declaration of interest from the provincial government for the documentary we made. And we also uh, supported a municipal ordinance that banned any infrastructure that would serve for the salmon farming industry. And that is how we went step by step, getting people to support this. And finally, this year, after also a lot of work, from the legislators, we believe that they had to negotiate to have all the votes. And with all the information and the science information available, they finally decided they would vote this uh, bill. The bill was passed on the 2 of July. It was, uh, we, we had the chance to be there to see, to, to see with our own eyes how 15 legislators from five different political parties will raise their hand in a common agreement. And that also made the headlines because it's not common that 15, that yeah. five <laughs> political parties uh, agree to do something like that. Um, and actually they suspended the, the meeting at that point when every, everyone said, okay. And then they all step outside and took a picture with all the community that was accompanying that day. What? With a big flag that said no to salmon farming and the vice government <laughs> over there. It, it was actually uh, beautiful. It was like Romeo and Juliet, you know? This sounds like fiction. I mean, it sounds just like a Disney movie ending. It's great. I mean, in the best way possible. It's just amazing. 
in, and what is amazing about this is that we knew that the battle wouldn't end with approval of this bill. As soon as this would go into the air, we will start receiving the lobby and the pressure. When I say we, it means the government of, of Tierra del Fuego and other decision makers will be pushed to back, back away from this decision. Oh, interesting. I thought it just like became a law and then that was it. Once the bill is passed, you have like a window of days in which the governor can either like say no to the bill or change the text of the bill. So we knew we were going to have a battle after the bill was passed, but we didn't know what it really meant. That was we were saying at the beginning of the, the conversation, because the Ministry of Production from the, from like nationwide uh, started tweeting about it, and then all the economists started tweeting about it, and um, different uh, sex, private and public uh, sector, really important people from different parts of the government started to push and to put pressure and to say this wasn't a good decision, blah, 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 blah. But what was interesting is that on one hand, uh, now we know that we can battle these industries, whichever the industry it is, that you need a local community to be really involved because what changed the tide is that the community being involved and legislators, as soon as things started to heat up, uh, started to answer back. Like, you're not going to tell us what to do in our province. We know what is best for our people. They depend on nature. They depend on a healthy environment. They, they depend on these jobs. A, a healthy ecosystem gives them. So in the end, we, we are still waiting to see what happens. But everybody that needed to answer back did it. Uh, the governor from the province had a meeting, luckily, with UN like three days after the bill was passed and and he talked about the banning of the salmon farming as something historic for the province. So, yes, yeah, so the UN asked the governor, Gustavo Meleja, what was his opinion about banning salmon farming? And he actually was proud of it and he talked really good and even invited the UN to help them develop on-land salmon farming. So... We, we have a sense that the governor will not ban this bill or modify the text. They are talking publicly about the pressure that they are receiving, and that is good because they're going on public saying, people is calling me, they want me to, to change this bill, but I feel we're on the right track. So they're making public this, this pressure. Yeah. And then it's today. So when you talk yeah. about, have you won? Do you feel you're winning? We can even not say now <laughs> that we have won until these 10 days pass and the bill is safe. So I'm trying to imagine this scene right now on your team. Like, are you all just messaging each other, you know, all day long going, oh, my gosh, what's going to happen? We try not to. <laughs> we were just talking about that before talking with you, with Martu. Um we are still waiting to see what happens. We, we, we know we did everything in our hands. Yeah. And as we were saying before, we still have other things going on and it's time to, we don't have that amount of time to, to celebrate, you know, we, we still have a lot of work to do with salmon farming and with Peninsula Mitre too. But um, 
it is a big message because this shows that if a community gets united and if work gets done and if you can be working on what unites you, not what divides you, things can change, no? And as Martu was saying, oil comp like the mining company and the oil companies calling, that's something good. That means that we did something that is good, you know? Like, oh, we changed something. We really changed something. So we have three days till the, like the big result, but everything that went on during these three years with some yeah. farming, assures like it's something that assures that this is the way to go and things can change yeah i feel like in a fundamental way you all already had the big result which was the success is in learning how to do this really really well i mean you all you know from my perspective of talking to different activists in many different parts of the world and having visited some of those places you all are the most successful um, project around this topic that I've come across. And it's just, it's pretty mind blowing to me what you all have accomplished. And um, it's just sort of miraculous. And I, I hope that this interview, if, if, you know, other people in other parts of the world listen to this, I feel like it can give them a blueprint, you know, roadmap for what they can do. Lots of amazing strategy to pull from your experiences. I think another learning of our team, we are a small team, as Maya was saying, we are 11 people in our team and um, seven of them live in the province. And this is very important. It's important to live in the place you are working. Mm. From the, the whole team, we have, we have a lawyer, we have a small communication team, we have a producer, we have scuba divers, we have the coordinators of the program that will work with the generating the economic study and all the things that, that I talked about and getting to talk to people and presenting studies. And we also have a marine biologist also uh, working with us for a year in the marine program. So it's a mix of people we have over there. And with all these minds thinking around this, um, we, we, we got these results. And that's important. Sometimes you don't have to be an specialist, you know, to, to win this type of battles. You just need people with different ways of looking at the same problem and, and, and finding the solutions to, to those small problems. How, I guess bluntly, how important would you say securing funding for an effort like this is? Can a project like this succeed with all volunteers or do you feel like you need funding? And this environmental, I think, no, that these environmental challenges we need to play them on the same ground. So if the companies are talking to politicians, we should be talking to politicians too. Mm. If companies are, are getting into the minds of the kids by going to school and putting their own programs, like what's going on in Chile, we should be there in schools teaching about nature and how, how we need it to be wild so it can thrive. And we need to be playing the battle on the same battlefields. And for that, you need money because money is time. And it's not that this is expensive, but you need people there. Mm, I really like what you said. Money is time. I think that is the critical thing. Even with my project with Salmon Folk, I'm searching around for funding and I hadn't pared it down to that specific phrase, but I'm like, wow, if I 
have to devote my time to do other work, to pay my rent, et cetera, then I have less time to work on this project, which I think is pretty important. You know, interviewing people like you all, I feel like is really important work, you know, for advocating for wild salmon, clean waters and everything, you know, but if I end up having to wait tables at a restaurant, I've lost that time. And while you are waiting on restaurants, they are work. They're 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 working to get their industry on the ground. Yeah, this is not a part-time job because the lobbying industry for oil companies, salmon companies, or whatever companies that are destroying the environment, they are there. They are doing twenty-four-seven. So you need to put your time to it, and for that you need money. You need to be able to live. You know, so it's super important. As Martina was saying. You don't need a lot of money, but it is important to, to have funding and volunteering is something that it's incredible. But if you're doing something else, the industry is still trying to put the salmon cages in the bigger right, channels. Right. Okay. So is there anything else you all would like to share before we wrap it up? Anything I should have asked you? I think it's important to highlight that what we did is the work also of other people that have been fighting against salmon farming. And with all those fights, we wouldn't be where we are. Um, for example, in the other part of Chile, a neighbor to, to Tierra del Fuego and Almanza, these towns we were talking about, it's Puerto Williams. And they are this community where um the local community, there's a lot of people that are uh, original peoples the, from the Jaganes community. And they had achieved to take the cages, some cages from the Beagle Channel on the Chilean part of, um, of the Beagle Channel. So, and like this, with all the people we talked uh, in Scotland, in Tasmania, in other countries where salmon fight, the salmon fight is going on, with their experience was really important for us too. So I think this is this win is the win of a lot of other battles, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's a very good point. Like I, I never would have discovered you all if it wasn't for Don Stanford. You know, the the let's let's call him famous. He'd appreciate that. And he is pretty famous in my opinion. The famous salmon fighter who lives in Scotland, he said, Well, if you really want to talk to some interesting people, you need to talk to Martina and Maya which is how I got led to you. So when you mentioned Scotland, I assume that's who you're referring to. So I think there's a lot of people to thank. Don is one. Don really helped us a lot during these years. The only thing I wanted to say is that, that this big win has also a lot of other, como, this win is the win of a lot of other people fighting against someone farming. Yeah, excellent point, yes. And maybe I can add also that after all this great impulse, we have been working on a platform called Global Salmon Resistance uh, that pretends to showcase all the groups of people, NGOs, citizens that are fighting against salmon farming. It doesn't matter in which part of the planet they are, but they need to be showcased because one thing that we learned when we started uh, trying to, to fight this battle was that there was a lot of people struggling uh, against salmon farming and nobody knew. It actually took us a lot of months to get in touch with people from Tasmania, from Canada, from the USA, 
from every country in Scotland to get to Ben to Dunstanley Ford, we, it would take us almost like a month because uh, this is not well known, you know, around the world. Like everybody's oh, doing their yeah. own model in their small space, and we are not getting in touch and 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 trying to build this from a global perspective. So we are building this global salmon resistance. That is a place where countries that are facing this problem can have a debate, can think strategies yeah. together, and can work together to ban salmon farming or to get better practices. Okay. And I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, and as you heard during the entire thing, that at the time of our interview, there were three days left until they would find out if the bill would become law. But you know what? They freaking won. Yes, they won. Argentina now has a law that has banned open net salmon farming. Martina and Maya's project website is sinazulnoayverde.com, which again means no blue, no green. The site is by default in Spanish, so if you mainly speak English, just scroll to the bottom of the homepage and look for the English button, and it translates the whole site. Then you can join their effort by hitting the contact button to send them a message. And if you want to watch the documentary that they made, which is called Contra Corriente Español, there is a YouTube link on their site up in the upper right-hand corner. You'll also find links to all of this in the description for this podcast. I know what you're asking yourself. You're wondering, Charlie, how do you get this podcast to sound so good? Well, I don't, but Jay Siebold, he does. Jay throws in some of his own original music and does all of the sound design, mix, and mastering. As always, thanks to Torgeir Vosvik at vassvik.com for the use of his music. And the main website for this project is salmonfolk.com. And there you'll see a big old GoFundMe logo. And remember what Martina and Maya were just saying about funding, how critical it is? And I can't stress enough how important that money actually is to creating this podcast. So please, if you liked this show, please consider donating so we can keep this thing going. A sponsorship or donation of any amount to support Salmon Folk Radio gets your name listed in the credits as a co-executive producer. This is Salmon Folk Radio.